0: Now, before we go all the way back to Mesopotamia to explain how logical and analytical thinking became so dominant in the West, I want to give you some ways of applying analytical mindfulness. In short, what I want to illustrate here is how easily the smartest people can be tricked into non-scientific thinking through the clever use of logic. And most of the time when logic is used to deceive, it's within the soft sciences like economics, sociology, psychology, and management science. Because Western thinking has been consumed by rationalism or deductive analytical thinking for at least the past 2,000 years, uh, and by the way, while that's been, that's been good in a lot of regards and ultimately got us to the scientific method, the downside is that only the hard sciences like physics and chemistry are pretty much entirely anchored in empiricism, However, the soft sciences like economics and, and management science and sociology and psychology, they're not as anchored in empiricism as we might like to think. And it is in those soft sciences that we can often see logic or deductive analytical thinking um, is often hijacking or overriding insights that um, those, those soft sciences would otherwise arrive at through uh, experience or empiricism. So on that note, I want to go over three specific examples to illustrate what I'm talking about here um, so you can really see what I mean. Now, in the first example, I'm going to show you how the field of macroeconomics, which is a soft science, um, actually has been operating fairly empirically uh, as an empirical science for the better part of 40 years, uh, pretty much solidly from the 1930s through to the 1970s. But from the late 1970s forward, what was once dominated through empirical thinking has been now heavily warped by um, rational idealists. And the, the consequences have been actually quite devastating. In other words, I want to show you how easily logic can tear the world apart when it's not being um, properly tempered through empiricism. Okay, In the second example, um, I'm going to show you how bottom-up business processes that have been successful in Japan uh, continue to struggle to work in Western countries like Canada and the United States. And in the third example, I'm going to give you some practical advice on how to avoid getting boxed in through deductive analytical thinking and how you can embrace empiricism And in that that, uh, third example, Google is going to be the the center of my um, uh, case study here. Okay, so starting with the first example, I want to show you how something called Occam's razor, which you may have heard of, I'll explain in a moment, um, can be used to seemingly disprove otherwise good ideas and can even fool the brightest and most analytically and scientifically minded people. Uh, and by the way, Occam's razor is named after the 14th century philosopher and theologian William of Occam, and it's also known as the law of uh, parsimony. Okay, so setting the tone here for what I'm about to get into, I want to quote to you from the late great H.L. Mencken, who famously said, for every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. Okay, so that's the tone let 's get into the, the the meat of the example now, so I want to bring your attention to two major influencers of economic thought in the 20th and 21st century, and those individuals are none other than John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek. Now backing up a bit, if you recall from earlier in this podcast, I pointed out that the hard sciences like physics and chemistry struggle with complex systems. And with feedback loops, whereas the soft sciences like economics and sociology and psychology, they all have these complex feedback loops kind of at the center of uh, of the science. And and that, unfortunately, is why they're not taken seriously, because whenever you have uh, a feedback loop, um, a chicken and egg problem, whatever you want to call it, as the sort of the center of your science... Then it's really not possible to form like simplistic or grand theories around that science. So that's not to say there's nothing scientific about economics or psychology. Rather, these soft sciences just don't lend themselves to those, um, you know, grand theories or mathematical models because any mathematical formula you can come up with will never be as reliable as, say, Einstein's theory of special relativity. Um, And one person. Who understood this really well <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, was none other than the, the English economist and philosopher John Maynard Keynes. Now Keynes is most known for Keynesian economics, which you've probably heard of or you might have heard of, and I'll explain Keynesian economics in more detail in a moment, but for now what you really need to know about Keynesian economics is that it, it addresses a problem that has occurred throughout um history going back literally thousands of years where an economy will be booming for a period of time and then without much warning suddenly it'll just go bust and that will be followed by a prolonged economic recession or maybe a depression which can go on for years or even decades okay so Keynes himself was born in Cambridge England in 1883 And he was very gifted in mathematics, and he could have been a mathematics professor, but instead he was more of a renaissance man, and he preferred to study economics, history, and philosophy. His greatest work um, is called The the General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, and it was was published in 1936. And much of the thinking in this work was informed by the events that he witnessed firsthand during World War I and then in the Great Depression. Now, while Keynes was a a believer in the power of free markets as a force for progress, he also saw that the free market as something like a serpent that, left to its own devices, would eventually begin eating its own tail. And at the root of the problem, as Keynes saw it, is something we now refer to as a liquidity trap. And a liquidity trap is when an economy... Basically, the the money stops flowing in an economy. So when an economy flows into a liquidity trap, people just are not spending or buying or money's just not moving around. And the main reason money stops flowing is when the banks are unwilling to make loans or even individuals are unwilling to make loans because the the banks or the the individuals have either gone bankrupt or they just have no confidence in uh, the economy itself, and they're afraid to lose what what little money they might have left. So this is sort of like a downward spiral, and then this can in turn lead to what's known as a run on the banks. And a run on the banks happens when the depositors, the people who put their money in the banks, they lose confidence, and so they, they panic and they, they want their money out. But since all banks are leveraged through debt, which is of course why they exist to begin with, they can only withstand an imbalance of deposits and withdrawals for so long. And then eventually, you know, when the run of the banks continues for long enough, they just, they will go bankrupt, which of course makes things even worse. So in response to this pattern of booms and busts that um, John Maynard Keynes could clearly see, Keynes believed that it was the responsibility of governments to manage this boom-bust cycle using two tools at their disposal. The first tool is what's known as fiscal policy. And the second tool is what's known as monetary policy. Fiscal policy dictates how the government borrows and spends money. Monetary policy dictates how a a, a country or a state central bank should set, should set interest rates and should control their money supply. So excuse me. So here in a nutshell is how a country's government and its central bank can manage the economy using both fiscal policy and monetary policy. So during boom times, so that's when like the economy is doing really well. Like if you remember the dot com boom, for example, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, huge amount of activity, very low unemployment, uh, lots of stock growth, all that good stuff. Um, So during those boom times, what's supposed to happen, according to Keynesian economics, is the government is supposed to use fiscal policy to rein in spending and pay off the deficit and hopefully run budget surpluses. And at the same time, the central bank working in concert with the government would use monetary policy to also to basically act as a kind of an economic buzzkill or party pooper. And they would do so by increasing interest rates and possibly tightening money supply and that really sort of dampers um irrational exuberance you know the stock market from getting too frothy and it also encourages people to spend less and save more for a rainy day um, on, on the other hand if you're not in a boom time and you're in like a bus time so if the economy essentially is crashing <clears throat> and spending is going way down this is when the government sort of completely changes course and then uses fiscal policy to borrow um, so that they can spend on uh, public works projects like infrastructure or expanding social services like healthcare. Uh, In other words, like they're going to borrow money that both helps individuals and families, but also helps businesses as well. And the point of these investments is really just to help the free market expand overall. Now, at the same time, The central banks are going to use central um, monetary policy to lower interest rates and to ease money supply. So create more money supply in the hopes of motivating um, people to borrow more and to spend more. So the basic idea is that the government and the free market are playing complementary roles and are sort of trading leadership positions depending on what um, state the economy is in, whether it's in a boom state or a bust state. So getting to to a... a uh, more practical example, the, take the 2008 economic crash. Now, this is probably the most um, obvious example of Keynesian policy in action that most people have seen in recent history. And this is why the big c- central banks like the New York Federal, Federal Reserve uh, were increasing money supply and also why governments embarked on these huge stimulus spending packages so this is what's known as uh, priming the pump, and it's pretty much the only way to revive a crashed economy. So that's what, that's what happened in 2008. So they did what they call quantitative easing, which is essentially just printing more money. And governments, um, again, launched all these infrastructure projects, or if they weren't actually doing them, they were kind of talking like that they would be doing them, um, which actually can have, have a positive effect as well. But there was a huge backlash to all of this and part of this um backlash to the 2008 um uh you know the quantitative easing and and the uh you know the the fiscal stimulus was unfortunately justified through the logic of keynesian economics itself so the the problem is, is that the U.S. government before 2008 had effectively abandoned Keynesian economics altogether, and they weren't really saving enough during the boom times to begin with. So <clears throat> um, to make matters worse, the interest rates, the central banks were also misbehaving, uh, at least the New York Federal Reserve was, and the interest rates were not being managed properly during the earlier boom times, and they were already way too low so there wasn't really any way to lower them much to make much of a difference and so that that was that was sort of problematic because that that tool was not as useful as it could have been but probably the most um the biggest mistake that was made prior to 2008 was that banking regulations had been weakened in the name of free market principles which resulted in, in, in big investment banks being allowed to take on these like highly leveraged positions, which, when you're in a very, very leveraged position, makes uh, chain reactions more likely and much more deadly. And to be clear, the European banks were even worse than the American banks in this regard. They were also incredibly leveraged, meaning that they had all this sort of outstanding debt. Um, the, the ratio of, um, debt to assets was way skewed towards the debt side. So again, when, when things start to go south, you don't really have a lot of options. Um, but, um, the biggest, I would say the biggest reason there was a, um, uh, a backlash during 2008, um, was during the, the 2008 um, government Keynesian sort of response or or, or rescue was that because there was a really only one monetary pool tool left, which was quantitative easing. Quantitative easing, sorry, which basically means that the government or the, the central bank is just printing more money. Uh, there were a lot of people, you know, were were very afraid that this would cause you know inflation or hyperinflation. Um, But they also didn't really like to see the banks themselves getting bailed out. And I'm not really sure if there would be any kind of stimulus package that people would be happy about when so much money had just seemingly gone down the toilet. Now, getting underneath those specific reasons, the biggest reason for for this this backlash, or I should say the underlying reason for this backlash, is that Keynesian economics is highly counterintuitive, now, let me let me explain Albert Einstein once said that life is like riding a bicycle to keep your balance, you must keep moving. So the bicycle analogy also really explains the macroeconomy quite nicely, because no matter how much debt you have taken on, the only way to revive an economy is through more spending. And if you've ever taught a child to ride a bicycle, you'll be reminded how counterintuitive the whole contraption is because the child knows at one level that she must pedal forward to keep the bike from falling. But her immediate reaction whenever she lifts the feet from the ground um, is to put her feet right back down again because otherwise the bicycle will fall over. So that's why a lot of kids uh, when they're learning to ride a bike need basically like a running push from their, their parents to, I guess you could say prime the pump. So, so this is, this is, this is kind of what the economy is like and what people are like when an economy is crashing. Um, and, and so, you know, you, you, have got to prime the pump, uh, in order to get the economy going, but people are naturally afraid to kind of take their feet off the ground, so to speak. So it's like riding a bicycle and that you, you can't really rationalize that decision through a logical theory. It's very difficult or rather, it's very difficult to rationalize that decision through logic. It's all based on, you know, history and experience. So like once you've experienced riding a bike, you just know how to do it, but you'll never be able to explain to another person using words, how to ride a bicycle, no matter how hard you try. And Maynard Keynes knew this really, really well. And he essentially learned how to ride the macroeconomic bicycle, so to speak. So like other economists of his time, he was, all, he was very well versed in history and mathematics. But the thing that set him apart from his other economist peers is that he also actively traded in currencies. And he actually made a small fortune during the 1920s that unfortunately was later wiped out um, by the Great Depression in the 1930s. Uh, he also predicted the, so, you know, again, so he, 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 he was not just a, a comment, commentator on the economy, he was very much an active participant. Uh, he also predicted very accurately um, the coming of World War II uh, due to the high reparation payments imposed on Germany by the Treaty of Versailles. So he saw that coming very clearly and, and he tried to warn everyone. So Keynes very much put his money where his mouth was, and uh, he knew how to traverse both the abstract and the concrete dimensions of the global economy. All right, getting back to the 2008 economic crisis and its backlash for a moment. The biggest backlash came from conservatives, and in particular Tea Party conservatives, who essentially formed a new political party in protest of the government stimulus or you could say the bank bailouts and what the tea party conservatives uh, believe is that any government spending or interference in the economy whatsoever is a bad thing and should be avoided at all cost okay that's fine but um if no intervention had been made at all like nothing uh i think a run on the banks would have have most certainly ensued following um the the collapse of, of lehman brothers and there would have been a depression um, as bad, if not worse than the 1930s Great Depression. So, uh, you know, I think what, what you, you can you can critique the details of the bailout, but if there was no bailout, I don't think we'd be sitting here right now. However, I don't want to disparage the Tea Party, uh, the, at least the, the logic behind the Tea Party uh, and their ideas too much because, um, to paraphrase H.L. Mencken the thinking of free market purists is in fact logical, efficient, and completely misguided. So the question I want to answer here is is how is it that the Tea Party and a big chunk of the general population, how did we all kind of forget to ride this bicycle? And the short answer is that we've not really seen a Keynesian-style bailout of this scale since the great depression of the 1930s so of course memory fades but there's another reason um, and that's since the 1970s macroeconomics has been slowly but surely infiltrated by a kind of religiosity that's not really grounded in science at all but it's just grounded in free market ideology and this is really what i want to kind of sink my teeth into here um, so yeah, to understand the, the origins of this shift in economics, how we kind of went from this this um, you know scientifically minded thinking to this um, ideologically minded thinking, we need to start with the Austrian philosopher and economist uh, Friedrich Hayek. Now, like John Maynard Keynes, Friedrich Hayek was both an economist and a philosopher, but unlike Keynes, whose ideas were crystallized during the Great Depression. Hayek was influenced mostly by his experience in 1917 while he was fighting in World War I for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. However, his time on the battlefield was, was cut short after he was injured and he was discharged early, which allowed him some time for conscious reflection. And what he concluded during this period of reflection was that World War I was the fault of world governments and that governments were the main source of irrationality. Ironically, most historians believe that World War I was in fact due to an over-reliance on logic, which fueled this kind of tit-for-tat trench warfare. And this is why the popular history podcaster Dan Carlin refers to World War I as a period of, quote, logical insanity. Now, to be fair to Hayek, his belief in the government, that the governments let down the world, was actually a pretty common belief held by a lot of people following World War II. I mean, most people were very disappointed with with governments after World War I. Um, but Hayek felt that not only had the governments let the, let the world down after World War I, but that they would always let the world down. So he just had no faith in governments at all. And um, he was kind of looking for other ideas and his thinking really turned as was actually quite common at the time to Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and natural selection. Now I've already already discussed how Darwin's theory of natural selection can lead to short sighted thinking back when I was discussing Charles Sanders Pierce and the example of public key encryption. And while Darwin's big idea no doubt has led to human progress, especially in the fields of biology, medicine, and machine learning, it's routinely uh, misunderstood and it's resulted in a lot of um, atrocities uh, such as eugenics and I I hate to say it, even um, uh, the Holocaust. So in the case of Hayek, he essentially took Adam Smith's ideas and Adam Smith, if you don't know who Adam Smith was, he, he's often regarded as sort of the father of, of economics. Um, and he wrote the wealth of nations, uh, you know, this, the Scottish, um, philosopher and economist, he basically Hayek took Adam Smith's ideas. Um, and, and, and he basically recast them in the form of Darwin and he called them spontaneous order. So the difference between what What Friedrich Hayek is saying and what Adam Smith was saying is that um, what Adam Smith was talking about is is a laissez-faire economy, whereas what Friedrich Friedrich Hayek is talking about is this concept called uh, spontaneous order, which is really more anchored in Darwin's theory of evolution. So in Adam Smith's view, the free market had little incentive to address public works projects like building roads and schools and so a government was needed to build these structures and, and institutions. But for the most part, Adam Smith believed the free market um, should, should do its own thing and, and you shouldn't um, really interfere with it too much. But he understood that there were certain things the free market was never really going to be able to address. On the other hand, Friedrich Hayek believed that all government programs could and should be replaced by private institutions operating in a free market. And while Adam Smith wasn't around to see the development of a welfare state, Hayek believed that welfare created these perverse incentives that would that in his view created more poverty because he thought that welfare just created a disincentive to go out and, and work and get a job so there was also a, a modern technological dimension to Hayek's ideas as well and he believed that the economy acted like this sort of giant information processor that could somehow or another sort out good information from bad information. And in Hayek's view, the important piece of information was price. And so the economy acts as this kind of elaborate machine that's just constantly adjusting prices, not just based on supply and demand in this simplistic sense, but is based on a whole bunch of other variables as well. And so it's a very grand and very elegant theory. However, it's also easy to see that it's a very flawed theory because it doesn't really explain or address the boom-bust cycles that have happened throughout history. And, but there's, there's really um, a, simple crux of, there's a simple crux to the problem of Hayek's thinking that, I'm, that I'll just take a moment to explain here. So first of all, the first problem with Hayek's thinking is this. How do you even define if a price is correct or incorrect to begin with? Um, if the market creates a pricing situation that leaves only a single person who can afford anything, is that the correct price and for, for whom? Um, so let's just put that problem aside for a moment because that's, I'd say, the main problem. But even if you say that there was some measure of correctness... Um, even if we could come up with like a, a definition of what a correct price should be, how do we know if the information flowing through this you know, massive information processing system is, is good information or bad information, So is signal or noise, if you will? And the answer is we, we never really do um, until I guess you could say a market correction plays out, which I suppose it is also a subjective concept. Uh, And depending on the situation, a market correction can take anywhere from a few nanoseconds uh, up till several decades to play out. So then how does this information processor regulate uh, itself and how does it prevent booms and busts? And the answer, the simple answer, of course, is that it, it cannot and it does not. So at its core, Hayek's ideas are, I hate to say it, like really nutty. But Hayek's ideas have two things going for them. First, he's appealing to human emotion, so people tend to daydream more about becoming wealthy than becoming poor. So you know, free markets have a kind of uh, uh, you know, like there's a bit of a anybody can get rich type of uh, uh, idea to them, which is which is true. And uh, people are also naturally repulsed by a sort of Kafkaesque nightmare of government bureaucracy. And of course, when governments spend too much money and um, get too involved in in running affairs, then, you know, we've all had a bad experience with some some government bureaucracy. Uh, So again, this this just plays into people's nightmares and and fantasies. Uh, But that's not really what I want to talk about uh, right now. What I want to talk about is Hayek's appeal to logic. So for people who are more scientifically minded and who understand Darwin's theory of evolution, um, there is an appeal to his ideas because there's a saying among biologists that was actually coined by Leslie Orgel, which says, quote, evolution is cleverer than you are, end quote. And so the the point is, is that there appears to be some kind of logic to how evolution works and it kind of seems like the ultimate machine for solving problems. But as I pointed out earlier, the logic is circular. And so this confuses most people. In fact, the motivation of Leslie Orgel's statement was not to imbue evolution with some direction or purpose, but rather to show that evolution has no boundaries or limits in terms of what it can accomplish. So for these reasons, um, it's perhaps better to compare Friedrich Hayek to Karl Marx, who was an idealist rather than Keynes, who was an empiricist. Now, going back to the two reasons why Hayek's arguments are so persuasive, in this part of the episode, I want to focus on the second um, argument, which is rooted in logic, and in particular, the logic of Darwin's natural selection. And as far as as the first argument, which is rooted in emotion and, and fantasy... I'll address this train of thought, uh, which I refer to as Aesthetic Truths, in Part 2 of this episode, which will be released at a later time. Okay, so Hayek's ideas were very much embraced by those who felt that Keynesian economics had gone too far and was depriving entrepreneurs and captains of industry of, of profits that they felt they had earned through merit. And this backlash began in the United States and spread to Europe the moment that Franklin D. Roosevelt rolled out his New Deal works um, program in the 1930s, which quite dramatically changed the role of the government in um, not just the United States, but how it was perceived around the world. And so by 1938, Hayek had already begun to gauge interest for his ideas at a conference organized in Paris called the Walter Lippmann Colloquium. And in fact, an interesting fact about that conference is the word neoliberalism was coined at this conference by the German sociologist and economist Alexander Rusto. And by the way, I should point out that the word neoliberalism, which generally refers to a free market centric way of managing the global economy, is now a loaded word and you won't really find anyone defining themselves as a neoliberal. It's really only ever used to define other people. So I find this word causes more confusion than anything else. And I won't really be using it, um, going forward here. So sensing that there was a growing appetite for his ideas among, you know, the business class, Hayek convened uh, a meeting with 39 scholars from around the world on April 8, 1947 in the town of Mont in Switzerland. And it was at this meeting that Hayek put down a highly influential document called the Statement of Ames. And it really reads more like a, uh, the Statement of Ames really reads like a, like a level-headed manifesto for intellectuals, I guess. Um, And you can, in fact, go on the website montpelerin.org and read the Statement of Ames. Now, what's important to understand about the Statement of Ames is that it admits that the purpose of the society is not of a scientific nature, but is rather an ideological movement in search of an intellectual or scientific rationale for a business-centric society. So the meeting in Switzerland at Montpelerin was a great success, and as such, Hayek was invited by a libertarian not-for-profit called the William Volcker Fund to teach at the University of Chicago, and they would even cover his salary. So while at the University of Chicago, Hayek worked with a person by the name of Milton Friedman, and other economists who collectively went, went on to be known as the Chicago School. And it was in the Chicago School that Hayek passed the baton to Milton Friedman, who would go on to become the new champion of Hayek's free market thinking. And what Friedman and his colleagues in the Chicago School essentially did was manufacture a takedown of Keynesian economic thinking through a series of sophistical arguments or logical fallacies, you might say, which Aristotle had described over 2000 years ago. Now going back to Aristotle's Organon for a moment, if you recall from earlier in this podcast, I mentioned how Aristotle's fifth, fifth book, so- Sophistical Refutations, describes a number of techniques that can be used to mislead people into believing or disbelieving in an argument. And there are two fallacies which Milton Friedman is playing into here, And to be fair, we can fool ourselves with these fallacies too. So I'm not accusing Friedman of a willful deception here. I'm sure he believed in what he was saying at its core, which at some level, I suppose, is rooted in emotion. What I'm saying here is that he was able to effectively use the following two logical fallacies as described in Aristotle's Sophistical Refutations to eventually replace Keynesian-dominated policymaking with Hayek's free market ideas. So he was able to take science and displace it with, um, essentially a a kind of a religion. So the first is, um, the first logical fallacy that Friedman used was known as, is known as the fallacy of many questions. And this is where the attacker will bombard their opponent with many questions in order to entrap their opponent by getting them to agree to statements that they, that later will be decontextualized and used against them. So this is how straw man arguments are often used to take down otherwise good ideas. So that's the first punch. And the second punch comes from uh, another fallacy called the fallacy of composition. And this, is, uh, and this argument states that what is true for some component or, or subset of a system must be true for the entire system itself. So how did Friedman wittingly or unwittingly, it doesn't really matter, make his arguments? Well, first off, I should point out that Keynes himself uh, understood the complex nature of a large economy and how it defies any simple mathematical formulas or theories. And although he was mathematically gifted, he never put down any formulas and also avoided any numbers as well. So for the same reason that we wouldn't teach a child to ride a bicycle using formulas or numbers. And to remind you, Keynes' objective was very simple. He just wanted to prevent the mass suffering that inevitably results from economic um, crashes, from economic boom bust cycles that impact all strata of society. And he believed that by maintaining a healthy economy, it benefited everyone from top to bottom. So, Keynes saw no conflict between a healthy economy and free markets when properly managed. Keynes was also very attuned to the subtleties of human nature in a way that neither Friedrich Hayek nor Karl Marx were. And in that regard, Keynes well understood that, for example, um, he knew that free markets tended to work better for the production of most consumable assets like food and stuff like that, rather than a, a centrally planned economy, which doesn't work so well for food production. Well, at the same time, free markets have less incentive to build new infrastructure and support the common good, like building roadways and parks and hospitals. And Keynes also understood that there would have to be some level of wealth inequality necessary to maintain this, this healthy dynamic. Now, much of Keynes' thinking on this topic was inspired by the early 18th century Anglo-Dutch philosopher Bernard Mandeville, was actually also a big influence on Adam Smith as well as Friedrich Hayek. Now forgive me but I have to take a moment to explain Mandeville's big idea. Mandeville's big idea which was expressed in his book called The Fable of the Bees and whose core is the core of the book is a poem uh, which is titled The Grumbling Hive. So The Fable of Bees is really it contains the poem, and then it's just a commentary about what the poem is supposed to mean and how to interpret the poem. Um, but you can interpret the poem any way you want, really, I suppose. It is it is a poem. Um, so the idea is, with the Grumbling Hive in the poem, is that vices produced through free market capitalism, bad things, for lack of a better word, can actually bring forth a greater good for society. So it's kind of counterintuitive. Or put more succinctly, Mandeville believed that virtue could not exist without the presence of vice, for if we lived in a society that was perfectly virtuous, there would be little to do except collect food and build shelter from the ele- from the elements. You know, you wouldn't have to put locks on doors, for example. Now, Mandeville's The Fable of the Bees did not make a big impact when it was first published in 1705, but it later came to have significant influence on a lot of people, including Adam Smith, Maynard Keynes, and Friedrich Hayek, all of whom got something slightly different out of the book and out of the Grumbling Hive poem contained within it. What Adam Smith got out of the, the, uh, the Grumbling Hive is his insight around um, the, this, this concept that Adam Smith referred to as the the invisible hand that guides much of the economy. So his laissez-faire thinking of economics very much came out of this book. But in Smith's eyes, what Mandeville had done was grant credibility to the free market. Smith, as I mentioned earlier, still believed that the state needed to play a role in building bridges and hospitals and schools and other public works. What Keynes got out of The Fable of the Bees was a counterintuitive insight that he referred to as the paradox of thrift. Which basically says that by allowing austerity to persist in an economy for the purpose of saving the economy, as a person or business might do with their own finances, can paradoxically cause that self-same economy to um, crash or get stuck in in a recession or depression. In other words, Mandeville pinpointed the source of all liquidity traps, which is a lack of economic activity. And what Keynes realized was that while it was fine to let free markets keep that activity going, eventually they would fall into liquidity traps. And the best solution is for governments to create large stimulus spending packages to prime the pump, to rejuvenate the economy through common good infrastructure and other public work spending. So we've already talked about that. So that's what that's that's in many ways what inspired a lot of Keynesian thinking was Mandeville. Now, what Hayek got out of this poem was not so much the insights that Adam Smith got or what Keane saw in The Fable of the Bees. Rather, Hayek saw just confirmation of his own ideas that the free market always works best. However, The Fable of the Bees doesn't really have anything specific to say about government stimulus packages, although government stimulus packages are entirely consistent with the message in The Fable of the Bees. So Hayek, being very much a hedgehog thinker, in fact learned nothing from the fable of the bees. It really just was playing into his confirmation bias. Okay, so getting back to Keynes, by embracing all of this history and complexity and nuance in such a fluid and sophisticated way, it also made Keynes very difficult to nail down using logical arguments. As his colleague at Cambridge, um, Bertrand Russell, whom we've already discussed uh, once said of Keynes, he said, quote, his intellect was the sharpest and clearest that I have ever known. When I argued with him, I felt that I took my life in my hands and I seldom emerged without feeling something of a fool, End quote. And so it was very difficult to take Keynes head on. And for, for, for these reasons, he's still something of a legend. However, a later economist working in Keynes's tradition uh economist by the name of William Phillips provided an opening for Keynes's critics. And this happened because Phillips wrote a paper describing uh, an inverse relationship between unemployment and inflation, meaning that he observed a pattern whereby when unemployment goes down, inflation often rises and vice versa. Now, while Phillips never put this down as a hard and fast rule, and saw unemployment as only one of many causes of inflation, it was enough for Milton Friedman to use as a straw man to attack. And so Friedman and the Chicago school took Phillips's work and described it as the Phillips curve, and then went on to describe a mathematical formula that would represent this curve. And so now they have this straw man that they built, and they were now in a position to disprove the Phillips curve and by extension chip away at people's trust in Keynesian economics. And to be clear here, Phillips himself never described any curve or formula. This was a construct entirely created by Friedman. So the great irony here, and we continue to see these ironies to this day is that the very problems that would cause the Phillips curve to fail in the 1970s were again foreseen by Keynes all along. And of course they were predicted by Friedman, who also understood Keynes. So Friedman would use Keynes' theories when it it suited him. Um, And the problem all came back to the same problem that had caused the Great Depression to begin with. And that was um, separating from the gold standard. Now Keynes understood that the gold standard, and the gold standard being that all money was backed by solid gold bullion. Okay, so now Keynes understood that the gold standard was inherently problematic because it meant that a country could not control its own money supply and as a result would routinely fall into these liquidity traps. And because of the hyperinflation in Weimar, Germany during the 1920s, uh, in large part caused by the Treaty of Versailles that Keynes opposed, it was too tough to convince the general public to get on board with the idea of a free-floating currency. Nevertheless, uh, the United States did abandon the gold standard, uh, in large part because of Keynes's urging in 1933. And this was necessary because the United States had suffered a series of runs on banks and was in desperate need of liquidity to reboot the economy. But a currency that is not gold-backed seemed a bridge too far for most of the public. And so the U.S. Treasury, working with the New York Federal Reserve, and this is going back to the 1930s again, decided on a compromise which became known as a gold-pegged currency as opposed to a gold-backed currency. And the key difference is that in a gold-backed currency, it's expected that for every dollar circulating, there would be 40 cents worth of gold stored in the central banks. So if the United States needed to borrow money from another country, it could acquire gold from another country like England, and then safely proceed to print more dollars. Truth be told, though, these central banks were never audited and often lied for good or bad reasons. So case in point, following World War I, the United States accumulated so much gold so quickly from, from loans made to Germany, France, and England that it forced the New York Federal Reserve to go off the gold standard briefly in the 1920s, or else it would have caused hyperinflation because U.S. Treasury would have been forced to double the money supply in order to keep the agreed-upon ratio of gold to dollars. So ironically, gold would have created hyperinflation in this situation if they stuck to it. Okay, now getting back to 1933 and the shift to a gold peg dollar, what happened here is that by shifting from a gold backed currency to a gold peg currency is that it meant the U.S. Treasury could now print as many dollars as they needed through a process, um, which I mentioned already known as quantitative easing. Um, and this would allow them to escape liquidity traps. So this could allow the, the central bank to inject liquidity back into the economy to keep it going. And the way that they did this. Was by making a promise that any U.S. dollar could be converted into one thirty-fifth an ounce of gold. In other words, they pegged the price of gold to be thirty-five dollars an ounce. And as soon as this happened, Franklin D. Roosevelt immediately outlawed the private ownership of gold for speculative purposes, and meaning that you couldn't trade it for you know to make money. It was just there for jewelry, and proceeded to confiscate as much gold as he possibly could. And the confiscations would often happen at retail banks where you'd, you'd come and open your safety deposit box and a government official would be, would be posted at the bank and would accompany you to your safety deposit box in order to see if you're hiding any gold. And if they found some, they would just give you $35 per ounce. So it wasn't really theft, but you can imagine there were a lot of unhappy people here. Now, as Keynes well understood, the state of affairs was unsustainable and would eventually collapse. But what is most remarkable about this gold-pegged dollar is how long it was able to last until the scheme ended in 1971 and the U.S. dollar became a free-floating fiat currency. Now, many people will tell you that this was a bad idea to unpeg the U.S. dollar from gold because bad things started happening to the world economy after 1971. However, the reason why the peg was unsustainable was that the free market price of gold kept on rising above the $35, allowing speculators to squeeze the difference for profit. And so there was a number of band-aid solutions like the Bretton Woods Agreement and the Daily Gold Fix in London that kept the price of gold down for a surprisingly long period of time. But as Keynes well knew, the U.S. government would eventually face a stark choice. Option A, stick with the gold peg and watch financial speculators decimate the economy or your currency. Or option B, remove the gold peg and launch the world's largest and most unprecedented fiat currency, which had never been done before. So in other words, it was damned if you do and damned if you don't. And Milton Friedman could, could well see this storm brewing and he knew that the Phillips curve, which shows an inverse relationship between inflation and unemployment, would not hold up in light of this coming catastrophe. So the straw that broke the camel's back was a recession that started in December of 1969. And this prompted Richard Nixon Nixon to pressure the New York Federal Reserve to increase money supply. But this only made the problem worse as financial speculators took advantage of this and began to convert their dollars to gold further exacerbating the recession. And so by the end of 1970, both unemployment and inflation began to spike upwards, leading to what we now call stagflation. And stagflation in turn lent credibility to Friedman's economic ideas. And so Nixon tapped Friedman as an unofficial economic advisor. However, in at least one case, Friedman had given Nixon some terrible advice Namely, in 1971, the Penn Central Railroad went bankrupt, which included half a billion dollars of outstanding debt that could never be repaid. Now, had Nixon taken Friedman's advice and let the railroad fail completely, it would have set off a chain reaction similar to what happened in 1929 and later in 2008. And here we can see that Nixon, for all his faults, was a more Fox-like thinker than the hedgehog like Friedman. Now with more confidence in Keynesian economics in August 1971, Nixon took the U.S. dollar completely off the gold peg and Nixon then proclaimed himself to be a Keynesian in kind of a dig against Milton Friedman. Nevertheless, Friedman wasn't just arguing against Keynesianism, he was just as much arguing for his own or rather Hayek's free market ideas So for example, he was a big believer in private schools and he believed that all schools should move to a privately managed voucher system where schools compete for vouchers. And here's a great example where Friedman is invoking the other logical fallacy I mentioned earlier, which is the fallacy of composition. And Friedman's argument goes something like this. Private schools have higher SAT scores than public schools. Therefore, we should convert all public schools into private schools. But Freeman doesn't tell you uh, what Freeman's not telling you, though, is at the same time in the 1960s, and the same was true really up until the 1990s. Private schools were relatively scarce and operated not so much as businesses competing for dollars, but rather as institutions competing for status. And this is why people still clamor to get their kids into these older private schools because of their institutional status. But these institutions are not designed to be like businesses as exclusivity is built into their reputation. And if you were to sit on the board of a private school, like let's say the famous private school Eaton in, in London, England, um, it's a very famous British private school. If you were to sit on a, like a, a board meeting of that school and you were to talk about Um, and you were to start talking about how much more money the school could make if they started to franchise the Eaton brand, like, let's say, like McDonald's or something, I suspect you would be escorted out of that room and politely asked never to return. These days, however, there are many, many private schools that operate very much like McDonald's, and for these schools, the first order of business is not developing a, a vision for students. But usually what they will do is they will often cook up a, a fancy British sounding name like uh, the Winston Percival School of Maths and Sciences. And they'll come up with like a Latin motto like solvitor Vivendo. It is solved by doing. And then, of course, you need a fancy crest with like a, a lion or a falcon or maybe a dragon on it. And if you have some extra time in your hands, you can write a fun origin story to add some more mystique to your school. And now you're ready to find students, and you can worry about the vision stuff later after you've sold enough spots. Some of these schools I'm, uh, are, are fine, I'm sure, in so far that if they hire teachers out of the public school system, um, but parents will be kind of paying twice for education if you think about it, because you're paying your taxes for public and then you're paying again for these. Um, kind of fake private schools. So, however, another important thing to keep in mind here is if the public school system were to be gutted and teaching standards were to be completely deregulated, then the schools could just hire babysitters at half the cost. And because, again, we're talking about entrepreneurs in search of a profit here, we might even see scams being run to boost standardized test scores. And yes, the school's reputation might go bust after poor test outcomes or some scandal. But in some cases, they might be the only business in town um, if it's a rural or remote location. And in other cases, the entrepreneurs can just as easily dissolve the old school and start a new one. So to recap, what, why I'm telling you about all this about schools is to show you how Friedman's assumption that what may have been true about private schools having better SAT SAT scores will not necessarily continue to hold true if you force all schools to become private. And so this goes to show you how these logical fallacies, like the the fallacy of composition, which Aristotle Aristotle wrote about over 2,000 years ago, is just as relevant today as it was then. But if you want to really get a, a feel for how Milton Friedman thought and reasoned, I highly recommend going on to uh, YouTube and searching for his 1968 appearance on PBS's Firing Line. The video is titled, Firing Line with William F. Buckley Jr. The Economic Crisis. And if you have the time, I encourage you to watch the first 10 minutes of this video. First off, it's fascinating to see how Buckley puffs up Friedman and describes him as this modern day Charles Darwin, which is kind of interesting. And when Friedman appears, he deftly argues that he himself is a fan of Keynes and then goes on to say that Keynesian economics are not in fact Keynesian and that Keynes in its final days abandoned his own ideas, which is really just taking Keynes out of context. And then goes on to say that Keynesian ideas have become a dogmatic religion practiced by exclusively overbearing socialist leaning governments. So his straw man is both Keynes in one sense and the socialism and Marxism in another sense, which he purposely conflates. And you might say that there's a spectrum with Karl Marx at one end and Friedrich Hayek at the other end and Keynes is somewhere left of center, but Freeman takes advantage of a psychological principle known as anchoring and effectively anchors Maynard Keynes to Karl Marx. To be clear, this is not so much deception through logical fallacy as it is through the exploitation of cognitive biases and we'll talk more about cognitive biases in part 2 but for now I want to focus on the logical trickery that was going on here. So now as I mentioned earlier, Friedman had been knocked down by Nixon in 1971 following the unpegging of the US dollar from the gold standard. So it wasn't a smooth road from his 19, from Milton Friedman's 1968 appearance to his heyday in the 1980s and 1990s. So how was Milton Friedman able to reassert himself and his ideas um, after you know, getting that black eye from Nixon? Well, it turns out he would receive two big gifts that would put free market thinking back, back in the driver's seat. The first gift came from Nixon himself, who appointed the corporate lawyer Louis F. Powell Jr. to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the second gift was the OPEC oil crisis in 1973. Let's start with Powell and the first gift. While Nixon was taking the U.S. dollar off the gold peg in 1971, during this same month, Powell, just before taking the bench of the Supreme Court, had had authored a confidential memo which is now known as the powell memo that conveyed deep support for friedman and his pro-business ideas now i've read the entire powell memo myself and i will admit it is a bit uncanny how it predicts much of the world we live in today live in today but i caution people to not get too hung up on this memo or the Pelerin society statement of aims for that matter yes they're both ideological documents that have been taken up by conservative thinkers but these documents, in my view, are, are a distraction from the bigger point. Again, the bigger point I'm making here is that these documents are all predicated on the idea that the economy and society can be reduced through simple logical arguments. And the arguments themselves are not the problem. The problem as I see it is our deference to deductive analytic logic over intuition, over empiricism, over history, and over uh, experience. Okay, Moving on to the second big gift that Milton Friedman received. In October 1973, the OPEC cartel threw up an oil embargo which which both forced payment for oil and gold while quadrupling the price on top of this through a reduction of supply. Now, I don't have time to explain the entire context of the embargo or the crisis that that ensued, apart to say it was also something of a ticking time bomb similar to the gold-pegged dollar. The moral of the story with the OPEC crisis, um, in my view, is don't build your economy around a single resource that you depend on, which is supplied by a bunch of countries that you decided to treat as fair-weather friends. And although many people will tell you that the OPEC embargo failed in its main objective, it has resulted in Saudi Arabia having a great deal of moral immunity in the Middle East. More significantly, the embargo marked a decisive turning point in economic thinking, putting the United States and Europe on a clear path towards Hayek and Friedman's free market ideas. And as a result of this perfect storm, governments continued to lose faith in Keynesian economics. And so by 1979, Friedman and the Chicago School, with their simpler free market ideas, were seen as the way forward, and Keynesian economics was and still is, to a large extent, seen as flawed and obsolete. So the Keynesian baby would be thrown out with the bathwater. But here's the problem. While the Friedman and Chicago School held onto monetary policy as one tool for managing booms and busts, they threw out the more useful tool, which is fiscal policy. They also laid the groundwork for anti-regulation, thinking that would ultimately make banks more um, more vulnerable to economic chain reactions from uh, over-leveraged positions. Uh, so that was, you know, as I mentioned earlier, with 2008. You know, that crash probably wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for all that deregulation. In other words, when it comes to the one thing that macroeconomics is supposed to address, which is recessions and depressions. Friedman and the Chicago school were simply not playing with a full deck of cards. Interestingly, it was Britain more so than the United States that embraced this view. And Margaret Thatcher in particular was even more full throated than Ronald Reagan in her disdain for Keynesian economics. And it would not be until the aftermath of the 2008, 2009 subprime mortgage um, disaster that people would even consider a return to Keynesian thinking. Now, all of that said, I didn't bring up these points to talk about politics or economics. Rather, as I mentioned earlier, I raised this story to demonstrate how analytical thinking can be of great use if you're in the driver's seat and you're the one asking the questions and you're keeping an open mind. But when the tables are turned and you're facing great complexity and someone else is expounding some grand theory while shooting down another theory using what appears to be logical and analytical arguments... Those of us who see logic and analytics as the tool for getting to the truth can just as easily be tricked into believing simple answers to complex problems, because in the mind of an analyst, an analytical argument based on fewer and simpler axioms tends to beat out arguments where there are more axioms and those axioms are less intuitive. And this brings me to one last point regarding how logic can be used to fool even the smartest individual. The problem comes down to something we now refer to as Occam's razor. And Occam's razor says that the, the simplest solution is often the best. Aristotle himself was in fact the first person we know of who proposed Occam's razor based on, on this passage taken from Posterior Analytics, that's the fourth book in the Organon, and part 25. And he writes, quote, we may assume the superiority, uh, all things being equal, of the demonstration which dis- derives from fewer postulates or hypotheses in short from fewer premises for given that these are all equally well known where they are fewer, where they are fewer knowledge will be more speedily acquired. And that is desirable end quote. And what Aristotle, but what Aristotle fails to point out here is that simplicity is a good thing when you're trying to construct new theories and all scientists strive for this simplicity. But scientists will also tell you that Occam's razor is a bad thing when you're trying when you're using appeals to simplicity to take down existing theories and ideas. So for example, it was known for some time that Newton's laws of physics were imperfect because they didn't accurately predict Mercury's orbit, like the planet Mercury's orbit around the sun. But it's not enough to say Hey, I found this anomaly, so let's just get rid of all of Newton's laws of physics and all that other witchcraft and just go back to the Bible, which we can really count on. Like, to make that argument is silly. That's just not how you argue against Newtonian physics. Instead, you do what Einstein did, and he proposed his theory of special relativity, which, as we all know, can be described as E equals MC squared, which is one of the most elegant formulas ever devised. And Einstein was able to use this formula to accurately predict Mercury's orbit, thus displacing Newtonian physics. And so this is a positive example of how Occam's razor can and should be used to advance science and knowledge. But since Darwin's theory of natural selection is also incredibly elegant, it can be wielded as, as a destructive Occam's razor But in reality, it doesn't have any predictive power in any specific sense. It just describes a process. And if you believe that Darwin's natural selection is the ultimate truth in and of itself, and by extension should be the arbiter of the economy, then this is like saying you shouldn't vaccinate yourself against a disease that would otherwise kill you, because that's just messing with nature. And so by embracing Hayek and Friedman's ideas to the level we have, we can easily see the economic snake eating its own tail right in front of our eyes. And that is a tragedy. To wrap up, I want to share with you a quote from a wonderful book that you might want to check out called Keynes versus Hayek, where Keynes says about Hayek, whom he knew well, and um, what Keynes wrote is, quote, It is an extraordinary example of how, starting with a mistake, a remorseless logician can end in bedlam end quote. And of course, Bedlam was the infamous psychiatric hospital located in London, England. So yeah, I mean, Keene saw Hayek as having gone insane. So where, things are, um, at, so where are things t- today with respect to macroeconomic thought? Well, I hate to say it, but there's not that much consensus. Many of Friedman's and the Chicago School's ideas are still taught although most economists focus on their work around monetary policy and treat it as a component of Keynesian theory. However, if you speak to a working economist, he or she will likely tell you that macroeconomic consensus is in disarray and that everyone is looking for new ideas. I won't comment any further on Hayek and Friedman apart to say that their legacy appears to be a little bit of monetary policy thinking and a lot of doubt regarding fiscal policy. In other words, they didn't give us equals MC squared or special relativity. Instead, they mainly smeared the macroeconomic equivalent of Newtonian physics and told us to go back and read the Bible. Now, to balance things out a bit, I will say that it is fair to say, and I don't think I have the numbers for you here, that academia is, is more heavily slanted towards Marxist thinking. Um, and while, and I'm not talking about economists here, I'm just talking in general, um, And while I don't feel the need to explain why Marxist thinking has been shown to be flawed in practice, I believe that many of the same logical thinking processes are at work here, albeit in the opposite direction from what Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman imagined. So in the case of the Marxists, similar to the disciples of Hayek, they also succumb to Aristotle's fallacy of composition. So for example, Marxists will argue that because free markets can and often do lead to gross inequality and two-tier justice, treating the rich and poor differently, then it stands to reason that free markets will always lead to gross inequality and a two-tier justice system that favors the wealthy. However, it is of course easily possible to find counterexamples to refute this. But I'm not going to spend any more time arguing against Marxism because quite frankly, it's a waste of time in the world we live in today. If, on the other hand, we lived in a world where the Supreme Court Judge Louis F. Powell Jr. instead penned a memorandum calling for, let's say, the nationalization of all restaurants and entertainment in the name of public health, and there were some academics agitating for Hayek's worldview, then I would be arguing for Keynesian thinking, but from the opposite angle. And to be clear... I would say that if the tools of free market capitalism are properly incentivized, free markets can work with governments to solve practically any problem. To wrap this up, the good news is the most discussed book in economics following the crash of 2008 is the book Capital in the 21st Century by the French economist Thomas Piketty. And it's worth notice- noting that Piketty's biggest influence is Simon Kuznets, who is one of Keynes's biggest boosters. And like Kuznets and Keynes, Piketty draws very heavily on history and data as opposed to simple mathematical formulas or ideals. And Piketty is very clear that he doesn't pay much attention to Karl Marx or Friedrich Hayek because they're so lacking in history and data. And if you're curious about this stuff and you like to develop a more grounded, nuanced view of economics, I do suggest checking out the following five individuals whom I've already listed, but I'll list them again in historical order. So the first is Bernard Mandeville. Second is Adam Smith. Third is John Maynard Keynes. Fourth is Simon Kuznets. And the fifth is Thomas Piketty. My final word on Keynes is this. Keynes essentially found the same thing that Nagarjuna found. And to remind you, Nagarjuna was the Buddhist who first introduced the seeds of logic to Buddhism. And what Nagarjuna discovered Is his own interpretation of the middle way, which is the idea of finding and maintaining a steady balance between two extreme positions, a kind of Goldilocks approach to life, if you will, not too hot and not too cold. And that, in my view, is what best exemplifies Keynesian thinking. It's all about finding and maintaining that macroeconomic middle way. And what that means or will look like over time is hard to say, but there will always be a middle way forward.